Um, Hebrews chapter 13. Welcome those of you also that are watching online. Um, You should be able to see the scripture on the screen. I'll read it and then we'll pray. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. The high priest carries the blood of the animal into the most high place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace that he bore. I'm in verse 14 now. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we're looking for the city that is to come. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer up, offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. And do not forget to do good and share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Lord, thank you for this powerful scripture. I pray that you, your spirit would minister to our hearts and our minds through it. Give us direction, refreshment, speak to our hearts right where we need it. You know where every person in this room and watching online, um, you know exactly what we all need. And you have that uncanny ability to be able to use one text to serve all of our hearts. And I know you'll do that. And I pray that you'd start with me, Lord. I, I, I want to be touched by this tonight. I don't want to just del- um, deliver it. I want to partake of it also. So I pray that that could happen. Um, open us to, to our hearts to hear what, we, what you're saying. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, we're we're um, soon going to be wrapping up the book of Hebrews, which is pretty crazy. Um, and it's been an amazing book. I hope you've been, I hope you've been benefiting by it. Um, it's a book written to people that are going through really difficult situations and really, really hard times. It's written to people going through really tremendous difficulty. We're going through a lot of difficulty. We've been going through a lot of difficulty in the last two years, but I would venture to say nothing compared to what these guys are, were going through. Um, the, what these guys were going through, losing their homes, losing their families, um, being ostracized from society, marginalized, discriminated against in the Roman Empire, were significant. There was economic trouble. There was social problems. Um, there was violent injury, there was death in some cases, there were all sorts of horrible things that were going on specifically to the Christian community um, that made it extremely hard. And this was the writer, the writer's answer. And I could sell, and I, I will be bold enough to tell you that the book of Hebrews, the messages, the ideas that are in the book of Hebrews is also the Bible's answer to suffering. This is what the Bible's going to give you when you're going through tough times. This is what the Bible is going to talk to you about suffering. This is going to be its answer. Um, so our job is to receive it and ask, is it, is it going to work? Do we have the faith to believe what this is saying? Do we have the faith to really say, okay, yeah, this is God's answer to me and this is what's going to get me through and this is what I'm going to rely on. That's up to us to, to, to put our... To bear our weight on this. That's what faith means in the Bible. Every maxim and truth in this book has been given to them so that they can endure through any situation, through anything. And the truth that's been given, we've seen angle after angle 
Uh, he's revisited some things. He's looked at it from a different way. He's, um, in fact, if you've noticed, Roman, the book of Romans is written linearly. It goes A, B, C, D. It's, it's a linear way of thought. Hebrews, on the other hand, is written cyclically. It, it repeats. It's a progressive repetition. You'll find some of the same thoughts, but it's like a snowball. The next time he goes it around, it's gained momentum. It's got other things to look at. It's got more mass. And he's getting the point across over and over and over and over again. That's what's going on here. Because he knows we need it. We need to hear these things over and over and over again. And the truth given in this last section that we're going to be studying is I think it's gripped my imagination time and time again. The word I want to hone in on tonight in this Bible, in this text, is the word city. City. In fact, you're going to find that if you go back to chapter 10 and you read through chapter 3 and you count the word city, you'll find that it's literally sprinkled throughout this entire section to the point that a lot of commentators, some commentators have picked up on this and they have said that the main theme of this final section that we're in, that's chapters 10 through 13, is considered the final thrust, the final section. They would say the point is, Jesus is the true king leading us into the heavenly city. That, they would say that's the theme of this final section. Jesus is the true king, the king we've all been waiting for, the, better, the, the king to end all kings. And he's leading us in on like a progression into this final, beautiful, glorious, heavenly city. So tonight I'm going to try to fully develop this thought and bring it home. Tonight we're going to, we're going to, we're going to go over four points. In this text you're going to see two cities. This uh, sermon's entitled The Tale of Two Cities. It's a robust theology that you can see from Genesis chapter 10, 9 and 10 and 11 all the way through to Revelation. Hopefully I can get that across. Uh, secondly, we're going to see... The necessary tension or war that's going on between the two cities. And I'm, I'm emphasizing the word necessary. Tension, tension is where our creativity comes from. It's where our strength comes from. Uh, schools that believe in critical, critical thinking, they do that because they believe that your brain will get weaker in an echo chamber. So they're going to they're going to add friction, pressure, adversity. It's a necessary tension. We're going to find that between these two cities. We're also going to see how that tension is used to transform us, to actually make us stronger and to be um, people of greatness. Um, how do we stay afloat in the storms of life? How do we become buoyant? It's through tension. Fourth, fourthly, we're going to see how one city redeems the other, will redeem the other. There will, there will be a winner. At the, when the dust is settled, there will be a, there will be a victor. First, let's, let, me, let me see if I can show you these two cities. Look at verse 14. It's where we can most clearly see it. It says, for here, for here I, want, I really want to read this slow because I want you to get... It's one sentence I'm really going to just pound on and launch off of. It's verse 14. He says, for here... Where's here? Well, it's here, right? Isn't it just a there without a T? It's here. Here, we do not have an enduring city. I'm going to say a lot about just that half of the sentence. For here, 
we do not have an enduring city, but here's the other city. We are looking for the city that is to come. As I said, the word city or city of God or city to come is used over and over again throughout these last three chapters. Let me just prove it to you. Let me give you a few examples. I'll read Hebrews 11, 9 through 10. He says, by faith, he he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob. He's talking about Abraham. The heirs with him of the same promise. Verse 10, for he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Abraham's looking for another city whose builder and maker is God. Um, A few verses later in verse 13, it says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises here, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind the the country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. There's a lot of synonymous terms in that scripture for city. Uh, Let me see if you can pick them out. Um, uh, promises They receive promises, but having seen them afar off, it's talking about the same thing. Um, for those who say such things, declare plainly that they seek a homeland, city, homeland, promises afar off. And truly, if they called to mind that the country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return, but now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. Those are all synonyms for the same idea. We're talking about something that we're desiring that comes in the future. Final verse, this is verse uh, chapter 12, verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels. There's a heavenly city that we are coming into, that we have come to. So according to this, God has prepared a city for you. A city for me, a heavenly city for us, the city of God. That's where you're going. That's what you're longing for. That's what you want. That's what you need. Uh, Your system, your spirit is on autopilot to want that, to crave that. It's the fire in which you were forged. Every complaint that you have about this current world comes from a somehow knowledge of something better. That it should be. You can't help it. You have a vision for it. But what does it mean? What does it mean that God has prepared a city? It's a profound little word. Well, in ancient times, the word city was more synonymous with the idea of society. Because there was no society outside of a city in ancient times. Um, there was no law outside of a city. Okay, Crime happened with, unchecked, without accountability outside of a city. um, There was no commerce. There was no economy outside of a city. If you and I were going to do a deal to make it legal, you and I would have to travel to the city gates and do it in front of the city elders and for for accountability, for it to be written down, for it to be official. That only happened inside of a city. 
So back then, um, to, for them to be civilized, if you were a civilized person, it meant that you lived in a, you were a citified person. <laughs> you lived in a city. You lived where, where humanity came together to do human stuff, to do business. Um, it, it's, it's, you know, it's why everybody comes to live in a city because the cities bring out the best opportunities. They bring out the best in people and cities simultaneously bring out the worst in people. All cities have that thing, have that going for them. Okay? Um, and the reason that a city and a, civilization were, and a civilization were so tied together was because in ancient times, only in a city did you have components and structure to grow culture, to grow a cultural life. The city was the only place that had a political life to rule that could bring an infrastructure of sorts that could house ideas and discussion and philosophize and those types of things. It was not an echo chamber. It was not normally homogeneous. It was lots of different ideas testing against others. Cities are good in those, in, for those types of things. And therefore, when the Bible says that Abraham was waiting for a city... That God, was, that God was building, that we just read, what that means is that God is preparing basically a new human civilization or society. If you trace the idea of a city through the Bible, you get the idea of society. Therefore, when God says, I'm making a new city, he's saying, I'm making a new society, a new kind of civilization, a new kind of humanity. This is the city of God. By contrast, the Bible describes another city that is also paralleling through the Bible with this other heavenly city. This is called the, the quote, earthly city. Um, some parts of the Bible call it the lofty city. Some parts of the Bible call it the city of man, the city of humanity, humanistic. And put simply, that city is the present human order we're living in that city right now or the pre or present human society is what the bible would call the city of man the earthly city is based on the principle and i mean this is not change this is one thing that it's always had in common if you trace it through history the earthly city is based on the principle of maximizing personal power and happiness and happiness it's all about power at the expense of others. That's how it works. I will give for you if you can give me something back that will advance me where I want to go. If there's something in it for me, then I'll think about helping you if the cost benefits work out. That's how it's all ran. It's ran on pride. It's ran on power. It's ran on a self-made kind of a mentality you could say in some ways it's very it has a very american flavor but this new human order that god is preparing is based on things like servitude things like justice peace gratitude serving one another even when it doesn't benefit me it's not a place of exhaustion and oppression but this new city that God is preparing for us, it's a place of justice and joy. That's where we're headed. It's the heavenly city. It's the city of God. That's what's coming. It's a future city that if you want a glimpse of it, 
You can read Revelation chapter 21 and 22 if you want a glimpse of how wonderful it's going to be. It is the city that will stand victorious at the end and envelop everything else. It is the life that will swallow up death. All of those biblical ideas are knotted up in a nerve bundle around this word city. That's what it's talking about. And in fact, one big word for it would be resurrection. That might be a foreign concept here in the West because when we think of resurrection, we think of something individual and personal. Someday, after I die, post-mortem, I will be raised to go to heaven because I believe in Jesus who forgave my sins. That's, That's what we think when we think of resurrection. But you need to understand the Israelites, Jewish people, that's not, although that was part of it, but that's not what they emphasized. That was not um, the main umph. It was a national thing. It started in the, in the Garden of Eden in Genesis. Life in, the, in Genesis, life is equated with being with the Shabbat presence of God, the Sabbath-inducing presence of God. That is life. From the very beginning in Genesis, that's what you're made for. You are made, you're fulfilled by being in the presence of God, and that will heal you and give you health and all of the rest. And then you remember the first mention of death. What was it? Don't eat of that fruit, for the day you eat of it, you will die. Interesting. So what's the Bible's definition of death? When they ate it, did they die? No, they were banished. Therefore, every Israelite that's thinking of death and resurrection throughout history, and we can see this in the Second Temple period with writings like Philo and the Pseudo-Apocrypha and all sorts of Jewish writings that came after the Old Testament was completed and written that informed Paul, the Septuagint, all of those things. They thought of death or life, death, and resurrection as national with God, Abraham with God. We messed up according to the Deuteronomic Covenant. We were then banished out of the promised land to Babylon. So now we are living in death in Babylon. And even though we're back in our own homeland because we're oppressed and subjugated, we are the living dead here. And resurrection will happen when a Davidic king will march back in the city destroy our enemies and bring harmony and peace back to Israel and therefore the entire world and the human race. That is resurrection. All of that is knotted up in city. All of those ideas are all kind of, it's hard to kind of pick them apart because they're, they're all there. You following what I'm saying with that? We, you can't throw out a phrase like resurrection these days without defining it the way the, uh, the Bible would talk about it, or city, or those types of things. Okay, so amazing stuff. The Bible says that when the city of God gets here, in the city of God, all disease, all war, all injustice, all racism, all poverty, all strife, and death will be wiped off the face of the planet. All your aches and pains, your hurts, your betrayals will be as if they weren't. Every tear, there will be no context for sadness. There will be no seedbed for which remorse or bitterness can grow. It will be a completely different garden, a completely different thing, a garden city, the, the city of God. That's where we're going. That is our hope. That's what the Bible gives to you to get through now. But, so that's point number one. But there's a tension 
There's a tension in this section, and I'll, let me show it to you. In verse 14 of our text tonight, it says that it is a city that, quote, is to come. That's verse 14. This city is to come. And yet, back up a little bit in chapter 12, verse 22, it says, You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God. Seems like a contradiction to me. It's made a lot of people scratch their heads. Have we, are we going to it? Or have we come to it? Chapter, says, chapter 12 says that we have come to it. And then chapter 13 says that it's a city that, we, are, that we're, we will be coming to. Which one is it? And the answer is yes. Yes. The city of God is already, but not yet. That's what it's like. And that, my friends, ought to describe your life extremely well. That is the poo that we find ourselves in. We are in, right now, you, are, we, you and me, we're in the already and the not yet. That's where we're at. Jesus, um, so... The city of God is already, but not yet. It's here, but it's not here. How can that be? And the answer is you. Christians. Um, What did Jesus tell his followers? Do you remember what Jesus said to his followers? What he says to you? He says, you, what, what word are we working on tonight? You are a city. You are a city on a hill, he said whose good works are the light of this world. That's what Jesus said about you in this context right now. You, Calvary Wallingford, you as a Christian, you as a a part of the Christian body in the Seattle area, you you are the city within a city. You are a city on a hill, and your good works, your way of life, the way you do things... Not according to the city that's here where you, it's all about pride and power and getting. But because you do things based on a different kind of doing, a different economy, servanthood and joy and gratitude, not from preaching from a pulpit necessarily, but the way you live your life, the way you look at the world, the reality in which you live by, the, air, the, the, the theological and ideological air in which you breathe makes you different and makes you a light in Seattle. That's what he's saying. He's saying that when people who've experienced the grace of God get together and form a community, that community is um, an imperfect yet genuine taste of heaven. That's what we are in Seattle. We are an imperfect yet genuine pilot plant of heaven. We're like an embassy. (laughs) You know, an embassy of heaven that God is... Put in, into Seattle. That's who we are. If you want a definition of the church, that is us. That's who we are. It's a foretaste. We are a foretaste of a new social arrangement. The new way people relate to God and each other. A new human order. It's a for, we are a foretaste of the city of God. So if you're, if you're a Christ follower, because of you, the city of God is already, and yet, not yet. Because the culmination of it is yet to come. The fullness of it is yet to come. It's here, 
It's not, he's just not here fully. And the more you and I surrender our lives and are discipled and sanctified into the image of Christ, little by little or a lot by a lot, however it works for you, whatever schedule you, God has you on, to that degree, your light is shining brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter. And to the degree that you rub off on others, Christianity is contagious. And that means that Christians walk a unique line here on the earth. It's really an interesting tension and dynamic that Christians are in here, especially here and now. Chapter 11, verse 13 describes it well. He says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed them, and confessed that they were, here's the word, strangers and pilgrims on the earth. That describes you and me. Strangers and pilgrims on the earth. This is, of course, the great chapter in the Bible known as the Hall of Faith. We touched on it a little bit in our journey through this. And it recounts all of the great patriarchs of faith like Enoch, um, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and so on. And it says that each of these guys confessed. Uh, It's another way of saying understood or owned. They owned an identity that they were, quote, strangers and pilgrims on the earth. They owned that. They... What, what got them through, what made them patriarchs of great faith, part of it at least, was that they had an understanding of themselves in the context of how they relate to this planet and how they relate to earth. In other words, what made them so tough to go through much, 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 much tougher things than you and I are, have, are going through was that they understood themselves in this way, pilgrims and strangers on the earth. The Greek word for stranger is actually a very, very difficult word to come to find out to translate. Um, it was referring to a actual, um, uh, an, a socioeconomic status in the Greco-Roman world, believe it or not. A, a, a socioeconomic status known as resident aliens. That was a social term that the Roman world used to define a certain demographic of people. You're a resident alien. Strangers, and that's the, word that, um, that's the word that Paul chose to use to get this message across. What does that mean? Well, on the, on the one hand, these people, um, on the one hand, these people who are resident aliens, they're not visitors. They're not just passing through, in a sense. They're not tourists. A resident alien, you need to understand, on the one hand, there's tension in the very term of it. They were a resident. They were a permanent resident. In other words, they were not from here, let's say Seattle, but they come here and they say, this is going to be where I now live. This is permanent for me. This is where they lived. And yet, though they are residents, they're not citizens. They're not citizens of the land where they reside. That's the tension, and that's, that's what the patriarchs understood themselves when it came to this earth, when it came to this world. They're not tourists, they're residents, but they're not citizens of where, this, uh, of where the city or country they're living in. And there's the tension, and it's a tension that we must stay in if we're going to be who God has designed us to be, and if we're going to be tough and make it through this life. That's the whole context of this book. How are you going to make it through this life? You need to understand this. Um, 
I, in my own life, get disillusioned with this life and get really worn out with this life. And I, in my job, counsel people who are very disappointed and disillusioned with this life. And a lot of times, for me and for others, I use my, myself as a case study, I forget, I think this is the only thing i got left. I, when I counsel a marriage that says one or both the couples are saying, hey, this isn't working out, we're not compatible for each other, I'm still fairly young. I've got some juice in my legs. There might be someone out there that would take me. I'm going to bail out of this marriage now and upgrade while I still can. And the premise behind that, the, the, the philosophy boiling underneath that, that's growing those seeds, is this is my one shot at happiness and romance. This is it. And I kind of I got duped. I made a mistake. By the way, I heard a statistic the other day that said... Um, Almost every marriage, if not every marriage, goes through a season of, did I make a mistake? So, you don't have to raise your hand and attest to that. Certainly not me. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, every marriage ha- has that going for it. Everyone thinks that at, at a certain point. And if, if underneath that is, this is my one shot, well, then you can, of course, understand when someone would say, I'm going to bail. If this, if this life was all there was, that would be very good advice. If this was it, if this is all you, if this is your one shot at, at romance and happiness, then I think the most lo- loving thing I could say to you is, yeah, go find yourself a, a more compatible person. The, but the Bible would say, but we're, that's not, you, you've lost an understanding of who you are. You're thinking you're a citizen here. Another metaphor for this that the Bible uses is the children of Israel wandering through the wilderness. We talked about this maybe a few years ago or months ago. Um, We are wanderers. The moment we try to set up camp here is the moment we start to die. That's the idea. You know, we like to camp. We like to go camping. But we also like to come home. We like when the camping is over, especially when you're camping a lot. There's a time where, okay, this is temporary. Mankind cannot, well, a few of them can, but as a society, we cannot go on living nomadic lives like this. We need homes with roots, right? That's the idea. And the Bible would say, don't, if you're going to be tough, if you're going to make it through marriage, if you're going to make it through relationships, if you're going to make it through parenting, if you're going to make it through anything that this world's going to sling at you, don't forget who you are. Don't forget who you are in relation to this world. You're not a you're a resident, but you're not a citizen. You're not a tourist. You're not just passing through. But you're not a citizen here either. This is not your home. We get mad and bitter at God because we're expecting this place to be heaven. This is earth and this is war. And, and you know what happens in wars? People get hurt. Shrapnel. There's even friendly fire. I'm thinking of marriage. We're two good-willed people trying to do our best to survive and we can hit each other in the process. That's, that's what the Bible would say. That's where you're at. You're in a war. And no one's going to get out of here unscathed. Okay? And that's part of what can make you tough. If you know what this is, if you're in a firefight and you get shot, you're going to go, well, yeah. 
I'm in a firefight. That's what happens, see. You're mentally tough. But if you're expecting this to be heaven down here, it's going to make you weak. When things happen, you're going to go, this shouldn't have happened to me. I'm a victim. I'm like Job. I'm the, you know, and on and on and on and on and on and on we go. Not to downplay your suffering. It's still suffering. But I'm saying to give your brain an, an oomph to get through it. Know what this place is and know who you are in relation to this place. You know what I'm saying? Are you picking up what I'm putting down? Are you smelling what I'm stepping in? Okay. Let us then go to him outside the camp. Let's, let's explore this a little further. These two cities are in conflict. There's this tension. And if you try to resolve the tension in either direction, you'll end up, it'll end up disastrous. You, you yourself will implode or shrivel up, and you will be of no really earthly value to here. Um, the way Jesus put it, if, if you're a city on a hill, or if you're a lamp, do you put a lamp under a bushel? You're salt of the earth. What happens when the salt loses its saltiness is not good for anything. He was, that's what he was talking about for Christians. He's saying, hey, you, you, you try to get out of this tension, you lose your saltiness, and you just become ineffective at that point. You become impotent as a church. We don't want that. But the cost of becoming effective is to stay in a very uncomfortable place. Let me, let me go a little further with this. What does it mean that Christians are resident aliens? Look at verse 13. He says, Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace that he bore, for here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Let us bear our disgrace, because here, let us bear, listen to that, just listen to that sentence. Let us bear our pain, our disgrace, our discomfort, because here, we do not have an enduring city. Try to grasp the profoundness of that. You're going to have to bear your pain here. Why? Because here, anywhere in this world, there is no enduring city here. There is no place in which you need to set up a foundation and put your roots down that will not disappoint you. You're going to be... You're, you're in, it's kind of the, the writer's way of saying you're in pain. Well, yeah, because you're in, you're in a place where there is no enduring city and you're looking for a place whose city and builder is God. Pain is it's par for the course. Suffering is par for the course. And God is going to use it to make you creative, strong, and effective. There needs to be tension. Not only is it inevitable, it's necessary. Let us bear it this case. Really interesting. Here's what it means. Christians, any version of human society that you find yourselves in, let me get, be extremely clear about this, especially politically, especially in this tribal environment that we're in. Let me just... I'm a firm believer that we, uh, when it comes to the Bible, that the Bible advocates for being political and yet not partisan. And here's what I mean by that. I get that from this verse. This is one of the main texts I get that from. Any version of human society that you find yourselves in, you guys, any city, any political system, whether it's socialism or capitalism or anything in between, it does not matter if you are east. I just came back from the east this morning. 
I came back or from the south. East or west. It doesn't matter what, if, if you are a part of a traditionalist culture or an individualistic culture. It doesn't matter if you have a high moral culture or a highly, highly secular culture. The point is, we have no enduring city here. We need to understand that. Any city Christians find themselves in, they will sense at some point a deep discord and tension between them and that city. That is part of what it... I mean, here's what I'm getting at. Oh, it's so hard to be in Seattle. Yes, it is. And it would be hard to be in Texas just for different reasons. Because at some point, at some point... Your Christianity, biblical Christianity, will find, you will find tension with whatever city, whatever environment, whatever culture that you find yourself in. It just might be a different set of problems. Okay? It doesn't matter what your city's like. Where do I get that from this verse? We have no enduring city here. It's plain. We don't have it here. And that seems to bear with reality. Or t- take the language of this verse. No matter where you live, the culture that you live in will, will look at your Christian life and say, I like this part and this part. And I love what Jesus said here. And I love this part and this part and this part. But at some point, the culture will say about your Christianity, I am outraged by what you believe. It doesn't matter where you are. At some point that will happen. I am offended at your behavior. I'm offended at your way of life when it comes to this, that, or the other thing. I'm outraged. It's a disgrace. The the verse says disgrace. It's disgraceful. You'll have to bear your disgrace. Why? Because we have no enduring city here. That's why. It doesn't matter where you live because you have no enduring city here. According to this, there is no political system. There is no economic system or structure of society in which Christians are really at home. So we don't have to bewail that we're, oh gosh, it's really hard for us in Seattle. It is. But it would be hard anywhere. It's fantasy to think, well, if I went somewhere else, it would be easier. It'd be easier in some ways, I'll grant you that, sure, in some ways, but it'd be harder in others. Let me prove it to you. Uh, Chuck Colson, if you ever want to read a great book, Chuck Colson, um, who was part of the Watergate scandal, went to jail for a number of years, became a Christian in prison, uh, brilliant man, came out of prison and started one of the most um, nationally changing uh, prison ministries that changed prison policy and, uh, I mean, Bible studies that are still going on. He's passed away a few years ago. But Bible studies and uh, prison reform that's still going on today through his organization. He wrote an amazing book called God and Government. Um, I highly recommend you pick it out. But one of, one of the things that he points out is that church, he, he uses the church's role in communist countries as, as a case study to prove the point that I'm trying to prove to you tonight. Um, the culture of communist countries in the 70s and 80s In those countries, Christians were considered liberals, Chuck Colson recounts. Why? Because Christianity stands against statism. Christians stand against the idea that the state can decide what's right or wrong in your life. Christians come against that. They're against the the, um, idolization of the state. So Christians work for the fall of communism. 
And they worked for freedom, so they were considered liberals back in the 70s and 80s in communist countries. But in the U.S. and the United States culture, Colson points out, it makes Christians look very conservative. Same Christianity, but different labels and different depending on the culture, depending on the city that you find yourself in. Why? Because here, Christians stand against individualism, the idolization of the self. We live in an individualistic country, and we stand against that. So here we're considered conservative. We stand against individual fulfillment. Our culture says everyone has the right to decide what is right and wrong for his or herself, and Christianity squarely says, no, that's not true. You are bought with a price. You're not your own. There is a higher moral structure going on. You're not accountable to just yourself. You can, by and large, organize culture into two general categories. It's an overgeneralization, but I think largely true. There's what you call collective cultures, which are more traditional, hierarchical. Um, to, in, a, in a traditional culture, the individual is less valuable than the family, the clan, the nation. That's, you have a very uh, important role to play. You're told what that role is. So like in a place like India... Um, um, Africa, you, are, you grow up and your parents say, this is what our family does, so therefore this is what you will do. But I really want to be a singer. I have this passion to cook good food. doesn't matter. This is what we, we're not, you know, the Manjays aren't cooks. You know, we're wizards. And we arrive precisely when we meet, no, um, On the other hand, then you have individualistic societies like ours in which the individual rights are way more important than any obligation that we have to the rest of society. Don't you dare tell me what I am supposed to be doing. That's up to me. And here's my point. Christianity does not fit in either. They don't fit in either. Neither culture is a good fit for Christianity. The Christian will be uncomfortable and find discourse and have to bear their disgrace in both. So there will always be tension. We are aliens, but we're not just aliens. We're resident aliens. And here's where I want to bring balance to the force a little bit here. What does that mean? There's another aspect to this that I want to bring balance to this because otherwise you're just going to feel like an outsider. You're going to leave feeling like, man, I don't belong anywhere. I don't belong there. I don't belong here. There's another aspect. We're not just in conflict with our earthly city. In some ways, we're in conflict with our earthly city because we are in love with our earthly city. Resident aliens were not against the place where they came. They came and they, they set up and they believed, in the, they believed in that society. Remember, a resident alien is not a visitor. It's not a tourist. They don't come into a town just to consume its resources and then bail. That's not, that's not what this is. No, a resident alien says, this is where I'm going to live permanently. And according to this, this means that you're committed to the flourishing and the... the fulfillment of your city. And in some ways, that makes the tension a little worse. Because when you hate your city, you know what, you know what you're doing? When you give in to that and you hate your city, what you're, this is what we call coping. You're making it easier for you to live here. 
If you hate something, it's easier for you to not care about it. Caring is where the risk comes in. Caring is where you're vulnerable. This is true of any relationship, but really true of marriage. In marriage, if your spouse is a jerk, you can do one of two things. You can either decide to just not care, become indifferent, cut yourself off emotionally. Right? And the marriage will die. Or you can dig in and lean in and try to micromanage it and smother the snot out of that person and your marriage will die. (laughs) There's a tension. You have to stay vulnerable. On the one hand, you have to be committed to that person's best. That's what marriage is for holiness, not for happiness. It's it's equated to our relationship with Jesus. Jesus came into our lives to save us from hell and from ourselves, not to make us fluffy and happy. And marriage is the same way. We come into each other's lives and and we say, I believe in the best version of you and therefore I love you enough to accept you the way you are, but I also love you enough not to let you stay that way. So I'm going to keep pointing stuff out. But at the same time, you've got to be vulnerable and honest and open your heart to someone that love is hurtful. Open up your heart to someone that probably will hurt you in some way. That's the tension we find ourselves in in any relationship. And as a church family, that's the tension we find ourselves in here in this city. Jeremiah 29 is a great example of this. There God speaks to, through Jeremiah to the people of Israel who have been conquered, they've been exiled, and banished again. That's another cyclical theme in the Bible. Banishment, exile, death. They've been banished again. And Jeremiah prophetically writes to those that have been taken to Babylon. They're in a foreign city. They're living dead people in their mind. Here's the advice that he, that he, he gives to them. He says, plant vineyards. Raise your families, raise your kids. And most of all, he says, pray and work for the shalom of the city. In other words, work for the peace and the flourishing of that city. Of Babylon. The Babylonians that took them away from their homes cruelly. You want me to love these people? It's way easier to hate because it cuts you off. It's it's a survival mechanism. It's coping. That's what it is. And the Bible would say, no, 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 no. You got to stay in the tension. Stay in the. On the one hand, don't think this place is heaven. Don't do that. You'll die. You'll get so discouraged. Don't think this place is heaven because it's not. It's a war zone. But on the other hand, don't cut yourself off. Don't hate this place. Don't hate the people and the politics and blah, 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 and the city's so bad and blah, blah, blah. You know, there, I just read this article yesterday in Nashville that there's mass exoduses going on over every major city in the, in the United States. It's hard to live. And there's a lot of different factors in that. Uh, there's politics, there's the, the economy, the housing market's just insane. There's also COVID that's made it easier for people to work from home and that's becoming more of a permanent thing. There's a lot of factors in that. But I know that there are a lot of Christians that are leaving the city because it's too, it's too blue. And I think 
I think of, of someone that sits across my desk and says, I'm going to leave this man because I know there's another person out there that I'm more compatible with. And I think to myself, this is, it's fantasy. It's fantasy. Because for one thing, you've got to take yourself wherever you go. <laughs> take it from me. This is the tension. On the one hand, don't think that this place is heaven. That'll, that'll, that'll shred your heart. On the other hand, don't cut yourself off and say, I hate this place. I hate the politics. It's them and us and you know, all of that. Don't do that. Stay in it. We have to. Love the city that will never love you back. How do we do that? This is my final point. It's quick and it's done. But I have to give you this because this is the gas in the tank. Otherwise, it's going to be, well, you know, go out and try harder, try harder. The Bible doesn't do that. When the Bible gives you a mandate or um, a prescription on how to live, the Bible, and I, I mean this, I, I, I really do try not to speak hyperbolically unless I feel like I can. But if you read through the ethical scriptures um, of the New Testament, you're not going to find a kind of a vacuum-like statement that says, you should do this. The Bible will always get to your. The Bible will get to your behaviors, your stance, not through your will, but always through your heart. Always, I'm going to use it. Always, and that's exactly what's going on here. The Bible says, "Do this." And if you're honest at this point, you should be able to say, "Well, I can't." When I'm in marriage counseling or in my own life. And I describe the way the, the Bible describes that we're supposed to love someone. Like Usually the conversation goes something like this, although not that this blunt because I'm just trying to shorten it. But, so it's going to come across kind of blunt. But um, in, in 1 Corinthians 13, the Bible says that love keeps no record of wrongs. It's called unconditional love. And a lot of times a Christian couple will come into me saying, I will start unconditionally loving this person when they start and it becomes a business proposition rather than a, than a covenant. And usually the man that's in some hot water or the woman that's caught doing something, they because they want to save the marriage, they say, yeah, okay, I'll do it. I'll do this and do this and do this and do this. and Done. And it feels like, okay, we got an agreement, but I always think, ooh, careful, 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 careful. Because marriage is a reflection of us and God. And God did, aren't you glad that God did not look down and say to, to us, Mike, I'll start unconditionally loving you when you stop doing this and get over this and master yourself in this area and blah, 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 blah. And when a couple hears that and they start to wrap their mind around it, they think they, this is what ha- It's a beautiful, honest moment that happens. They say, it's impossible. I can't do that. And I think, And here we go. Now, exactly. And at this point in the sermon, when I'm describing how we're supposed to be in this city and love this city, I'm hoping at this point that you're going, it's not possible. Because the Bible would say, yeah, exactly. It's not. How? How do we do this? The Bible comes back and says, yeah, but there's one who did it in your place and did it for you. To the degree that you grasp that and it changes your life, to that degree will you begin to do it also. 
Look at here it is. He says he's going to get get at the heart. Why should we do this? Verse twelve. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Next verse. Let us then. That's the formula of the ethical material in all of the Bible. Jesus did this, then, let us then. In other words, this is the only good way for this to work itself out. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore, because we do not have a city, an enduring, we do not have an enduring city, but we're looking for the city that is to come. You see what he's saying? How do we do this? Because he did it for you. He loved a person that would never love him back the way we should. You know that, right? At the heart of Jesus' love for me, I'm the only one shocked that I don't love Jesus as much as I should. Jesus knew it the whole time. He knows you to the bottom and yet he still loves you to the sky. In fact, I'll tell you this, there are things in you, some of you, that you'll do five, ten years from now and you'll think, I can't believe I ever did that. I just can't believe I could go and sink to those kinds. I can't believe I could go into that place. I can't believe I could do that. Jesus knew it the whole time. The whole time. He knows things that you're going to do that you don't even know you're going to do yet. And yet he died out. You see what it's saying? It's saying Jesus lost the city. He lost it. Not just the earthly city. In fact, it's not even the earth. It's the heavenly city that he lost because on the cross, Jesus didn't say, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, why have you forsaken me? What is he saying? He's talking to the heavenly king of the heavenly city. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He lost the heavenly city so that you and I could have it. Uh, One commentator says, Jesus Christ lost the city that was so that we can become citizens of the city to come, making us salt and light to the city that is. Couldn't say it any better myself. Jesus Christ lost the city that was so that we can become citizens of the city to come, making us salt and light to the city that is. And that's the balance. That's how it works. Only when I see that Jesus Christ loved me when I... See, when you come and take communion tonight, you're not saying, I'm going to love you back. You're celebrating that His love for you is so complete, so full, that it swallows up your failure. (sighs) That Romans chapter 5 says, where your sin abounds, His grace abounds even more. You think your sin is pretty stubborn? Your sin will cease. It will cease someday. His grace will never. It will win. His grace will be a part of that city that when all the dust is settled, it will say, I won death. Where is your sting? And that's what we call assurance. You can be sure tonight that God's love for you is strong, immovable, unshakable, undeniable. You don't have to be insecure in your faith anymore. That's what all this means. He did this to give you a sure foundation 
to which to go out and live your life in a way that brings glory to God.